On Sunday the 29th of November, Liverpool defender Andy Robertson will be speaking to the Liverpool Echo live on Facebook from 7.30. As well as speaking about his charity, AR26, and his book Robbo, Now You're Gonna Believe Us, Our Year, My Story, he'll also be answering your questions. If you want to put your question to Robbo, simply follow the link in the description of this podcast fill in the form and press submit. It really is that simple. Remember, Sunday the 29th of November, 7.30 on Facebook. Just follow the link, fill in the form, and Robbo could be answering your question. This is the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Welcome to another Liverpool.com podcast. I'm Dan Morgan. I'm going to be your host this week. And today I'm joined by... Liverpool.com staff writer Mark Wakefield and Blood Reds Matt Addison. Gentlemen, hope you're both well today. Uh, got quite a bit to get to given the fact that it's the day after the, the night before in terms of Atalanta in the Champions League. Liverpool 2-0 defeat at Anfield. But firstly, there's obviously some breaking news around the day in terms of the government's tiers being announced for the ending of the latest lockdown. And Matt Liverpool have been placed in Tier 2, which means that in a footballing sense, we will in theory be allowed 2,000 fans back into stadiums, which would include obviously uh, Liverpool and Everton. So initially, it sounds like good news. Um, it sounds like a step in the right direction, but I'm sure we'll come to it. There's, there's seemingly, as, as ever with government rules, many, many flaws uh, that we can point out. What's your initial thoughts on the matter? Yeah, my my initial thoughts, as you say, is it's a positive step forward. 2000 is better than nothing. I think, obviously, we've waited so long to, to get people back in the ground. And I think even a small number will make a, a significant difference. Even if you're, you're sat at home watching on TV, I think to, to just see that there are people in the stadium rather than it being completely empty, I think that will make a, a significant difference. But yeah, there, there are still a lot of questions to be asked. I think one of the, the first things that I thought was, if you've got 2,000 people in, is it not just going to cost the club even more money? I know that's not the, the prime prime sort of thing that, that you're thinking about. You're thinking about, yes, 2,000 people can, can come back, but is it financially viable for, for clubs to, to be doing that? I'm not too sure. I'm sure Liverpool would, would take the economic hit if it meant that, that some fans could come back in. But I think that is a question, certainly for, for some clubs elsewhere. I think the other big issue is then you know what happens with you know who who's allowed in who's not allowed in how do you pick the 2000 i'm sure there's many many more thousand than, than just the, the 2000 who'd love to, to be inside anfield so yeah the, the initial reaction is this is good it's a, a positive step but i think there are still a lot of questions that, that have to be answered before you know we, we really know where we stand on this Mark, you, you wrote a wake-up on this the other day for the, for the site and, and I think you were very sort of right to, to raise the points that you raised in that this is this isn't in context to each individual club. So, you know, if if a if a side like like you mentioned Fleetwood, for example, holds nine thousand and they're in tier two, then you know, by virtue of the space that isn't around a stadium which is much more compact. The risk, if you like, is much greater because people are naturally going to be in closer contact. Whereby Anfield has a stadium capacity, as we know, 54,000. So 2,000 within that space is a lot more 
manageable, you would say, in terms of distancing people and, and spreading people out. I mean, it made more sense, surely, to, to do this on a, a sort of percentage basis, basis for, for each capacity stadium, did it not? Definitely, yeah. I mean, basically, written word for word what I said in my piece, you know, that how can it be right that, you know, a stadium that holds 54,000 can um, be forced to hold the same amount of people as a stadium that has five, six, seven thousand and lead one or lead two. It just it doesn't seem right. I mean, obviously it's absolutely brilliant news that we can have fans back in the stadium. It's what we've all been craving for these past few months and a step it is definitely a step in the right direction. But for me it just doesn't seem like the re- the right way to go about it. Um this, the decision that's been made has been made by people who aren't involved in football. I think that's part of the problem. It's been realized on the government level. Um obviously safety of the people involved fans, staff, players, backroom team, everyone that's at the ground has obviously got to take paramount priority, of course, and it always should do. But like you, like you said, it's got, it should be, well, from a personal point of view, looking in, it should be based on the percentage of the stadium, um, whether that's 5%, 10%, 15%, whatever it is, um, that should be the way to go about it. And then you've got the other argument, uh, the other argument of, you know, teams being allowed, fans in, in, one, in the league, and then other teams in the same league aren't, and that, again, is not a level playing field. I mean, you know, Liverpool fans are going to have fans in there. Man United, Man City aren't. You know, on the face of it, that's like an advantage to Liverpool. And to some extent, it probably is. But, you know, it's just, it's not fair. It's got to be fair to every single club in every single league. And allowing fans in some grounds and not in others in the same league is just isn't fair. You can see why they've done it. Obviously, some areas are going to be in Tier 3. Quite a lot of areas in Tier 3, which means no fans. But, um, yeah, it just just doesn't seem right. Um, when you actually look at it, obviously on the outside, fans are coming back in, that's great, but when you actually look at it, there's actually a lot more flaws to it than you probably would imagine. I think I think that's sort of where my argument is math with this, in, in to just to just jump on what Mark said and, and go off on, on my own sort of tangent, is that my my argument would be that for me this has to be a process towards something. This has to be a step towards something tangible that eventually leads to, to supporters back in stadiums. Now, I know that with with the health pandemic that's happening, with obviously the virus that is still not under control in this country and, and to be honest, in the rest of the world, that is impossible to sort of make a, a, a conscious plan for in a, in, a, in a realistic sense. However, I think what, what worries me is that we could get given this um, by January, it could all be taken away. So it's almost as if to say, well, what's the point of the enterprise here to get stadium, to get fans back in stadium for a month? I don't, I don't really see this as being the first step towards Liverpool being back to full capacity in a year's time, whenever it is. The goalposts can change depending on the numbers of the virus and the infection rates. Yeah, it, it does seem a little bit soon, doesn't it? It, it wasn't something that I was expecting to, to come out, certainly until next year, given the way that it's been going for, for the last few months and that sort of thing. But I suppose the, the only thing that I can think of is that it's not really about a Liverpool or a Manchester City or whoever the top teams are. I think it's more about lower down the pyramid. You've got to allow fans back into stadiums to, to help those clubs survive and that sort of thing. And I suppose that it wouldn't have been a good look if... For example, you mentioned Fleetwood before. If they were allowed a certain amount of fans back, you then have to to offer that same thing to, to all clubs across the country 
obviously safety measures uh, being in there in terms of the, the tiered system and, and that sort of thing. So I think it's probably designed more for, for the smaller clubs than the bigger clubs in that regard. But yeah, you are right to, to point out that it, it, it's about that step forward, isn't it? Hopefully, you know, the, the 2,000 is the start point. You then maybe jump up to, to 5,000 and 10,000 and over the months you sort of build it and, and get bigger and bigger and bigger. But yeah, I suppose the, the concern at this point is that, you know, winter is still a couple of months of, of being there. There's still, you know, various questions to be asked about the vaccine and, and that sort of thing. And and you wonder maybe by January, are we back at square one again? But yeah, I think we have to, to sort of take it as, as, as much of a positive as we can. It feels like a step forward right now. And, and hopefully that is still the case in, in a month or so's time. Yeah, I mean, just finally, Mark, to, to accentuate the positives, I guess. I think, OK, it's 2,000 fans for Liverpool. You know, it could have been none. Liverpool, we know we're very close to to being in Tier 3. They were the first city to go into Tier 3. So we have to sort of look at December at least, Anfield having 2,000 supporters in and what that means to this team. I think it means more to this team than, than any, really. You know, Andy Robertson, Jürgen Klopp... I've all spoken about the fact that this stadium without fans does not feel right. And like Matt said before, just the concept of of having the goal cheered by 2,000 people is going to be so much greater, so much better than none at all. And, you know, if that's all we have at the minute, then we take it because we know how much having the fans there benefits this team. It's a two-way thing. It's something the club's built, something he's emphasised since day one so to even have you know one percent of that back whatever it is 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 better than nothing yeah absolutely i mean you know we've, list, we've listed all the negatives all the flaws to it but there are there is no doubt some a lot of positives to it um certainly from a liverpool perspective you know you know looking at it personally it's absolutely it just breaks your heart to see anfield empty even with the away fans you know the bands that you can get with away fans sometimes just you know it just doesn't feel right it being empty and yes 2000 in a 54000 seat stadium is going to feel obviously it's not going to feel perfect but it's still going to be better than what it was with nobody there um and yeah just just something as simple as you know having a, a real uh crowd cheer for a goal going in or you know a foul going against you or a decision or whatever it may be something like that is better than you know the automated crowd cheers that we have on watching it on tv um so yeah, there are definite positives to it. Um, we've obviously listed the flaws, and like you said, you know, it does feel like it might just be a temporary thing for the next month to whatever it may be. But for now, at least for December, when you know Liverpool have got, I don't know, a handful of games at home, big games as well. We considering who they've got in that time: Spurs, um, Wolves as well, West Brom on Boxing Day. You know, there's a lot of big games in there as well as obviously um, they've got a Champions League game against Ajax. Whether that will be I think that will probably be a bit too soon, actually, for that. But, um, yeah, certainly there's a lot of positives to come from it, even if there are a few negatives. OK, back to matters on the pitch. Uh, last night, Liverpool fell to Atalanta at Anfield by two goals to nil. Um, a result that, in many ways, was not surprising, Matt. Um, I don't know whether it was to you, but a team that is... I wrote about it after the game. A team that is by necessity rather than choice and a result that we've all probably feared if we're being honest 
um, over the last few weeks has come to fruition. And, and that's not that's not a dig at anyone on the pitch. It's literally a case of this manager having to to juggle and gamble with so many things, and eventually a result like this is going to happen. And maybe you can argue with time, it's again the perfect time to get beat, if you like. Yeah, I mean, you looked at the changes and to be honest, I still thought Liverpool would have enough uh, to at least get a point and at least you know, perform better than what they did. I think obviously Jurgen Klopp has been very, very vocal, quite rightly, about the fixture schedule, quite rightly about the, the number of, of changes that he is going to have to make because you know players are just not being taken care of at the moment with the amount that they're you know, having to, to put in. The, the games are coming thick and fast and... I can understand why he made as many changes as, as what he did. I still thought, though, that the, the eleven Liverpool put out should have been enough to perform, you know, well above that level. I thought, you know, Salah and, and Mane were in that team. You expect, you know, for for them to to drag this team forward, for example. But you know, Liverpool didn't end up having a shot on target in the the entire game. They didn't perform well as a team. You know, the the players who who came in didn't really quite work. I'm not quite sure. You know, what happened to, to the midfield area? We were talking about, you know, Jones and, and Wijnaldum over the weekend being brilliant. But then last night, neither of them, it just didn't quite seem to click. So I take the, the point of, of obviously they've made changes. The fixture schedule is mad and there have been fears that this could happen at some point. But for me, when I saw the team sheet, it, it wasn't an immediate sort of thing of oh, Liverpool might lose here. I was still thinking, well, there should be enough in that eleven to to do something to get the job done, even if it's you know only by the odd goal. They should still have performed a lot better than what they did. I thought. Did you expect the team matches to come back to you? Did, did you expect sort of Salah and Mane in there? I mean, I, I have a theory around that. I think that personally, I think he tries to take pressure off the back line by putting Salah and Mane in the side. You know, there's the muscle memory from what happened in Bergamo, Liverpool. Won five nil with with those players in the pitch, and they were in scintillating form as was Diogo Jota. But I wonder whether you know Klopp's thought that if he gets them up the pitch, then Atalanta's line will drop. You know they won't be as sort of willing to come forward as they were, and you can sort of understand that to an extent. I think the one big miss for me is Robertson, and I think I think you're sort of seeing now a situation whereby this is a team that needs him in the side as much as it does Henderson in many senses. You know, you look at Leicester as a comparison. Liverpool are able to get up the pitches as regularly as they are because Robertson's getting them up. And I think the midfield line, for example, sits on the defensive line a lot a lot more last night from a tactical point of view. But with a player like him in the back line, you know, he can get you up the pitch quicker and you don't have those isolated forwards like we ended up seeing. Yeah, it wasn't a surprise that a few changes were made. It was a surprise for me that Andy Robertson wasn't there. It was a surprise that it was a Rigi through the middle and not Minamino. There was a couple of bits that I didn't necessarily agree with. But to be honest, I didn't think Costas Simicast did particularly poorly. I thought he was all right. He wasn't brilliant. He wasn't poor for me. He was just sort of average, considering it was uh, sort of putting him in out of the blue, really. It was uh, a performance that I thought you could probably have expected from him. But... Yeah, as much as there was a couple of different positions that maybe I would have done something different. Nico Williams, again, I thought he was all right. He wasn't dreadful. He wasn't brilliant. But I think for me, it would have made more sense to have Milner there against Atalanta and then have Nico Williams at the weekend against Brighton when I think Liverpool can afford to to be a little bit more open and expansive in, in that game. So 
there was a few bits that I didn't necessarily agree with. As you say, the sort of formation, the tactics didn't quite pull together in the way that Jurgen Klopp would have wanted. But yeah, there, were, there was a couple of surprises. But as I say, I, I still think they should have had enough to, to perform at a, a better level. And I don't think you can you know, give the players the excuse of, oh, they've not played together before or, or they've come up, come out of the blue and, and stuff like that. I think certainly for someone like Divock Origi, you just you really desperately wanted a little bit more from him. We know that he can offer a little bit more and it, he just didn't quite do that. And unfortunately for Liverpool, there was just too many areas of, of the pitch where it just didn't quite click enough for them to, to get that job done. Mark, what was your view on it? Um, I mean, I was certainly very surprised to see one or two players in the team. Um, you know, Matic, I was very surprised to see him in the starting lineup. But when I saw it, I thought, OK, give him 45 minutes, maybe bring Fabinho on at half-time. Like, that didn't happen. That surprised me even more that he played in for, what was it, about 85 minutes. I think Matic played before he came off, um, which was very surprising given you know he is the senior centre-back at the club right now. Um, yeah, I wasn't surprised to see Origi uh, playing, but, you know, he is what he is at this minute. You know what you're going to get from him. Um, I just thought it was a classic example of just... I think they missed Firmino a lot in that game. Um, there were plenty of times where, you know, the dip, main difference between Firmino and Origi is they'll, they'll both have it, the ball to feet a lot, but the link-up play that Firmino gives you, especially with the midfield and linking up with the front three players like Mane and Salah, it just wasn't there last night. Um, you know, there's not one put, you can't just pick one poor play. I think nobody had a fantastic game, like Matt said. Um, Simi Cass didn't do great, but didn't do poorly. Same for uh, Nico Williams, and same for Reese, and pretty much every other player on the pitch. I, I thought Allison was probably the best out of the lot, um, given a couple of saves and a couple of moments he made, but overall it wasn't the performance you want to see, but it just seemed like a performance that just screamed that they were more bold about Brighton at the weekend than last night. And to some extent, you can agree with that. You know, three wins out of three before that in the group. Um, you know, by all, they're not by qualified yet by any stretch of the imagination. No, Ajax are next week at home. That's not going to be easy. And then Midtjylland away, you know, that's not going to be easy either. Um, it just seems like, certainly from a team selection point of view, but more so from a, a mental approach point of view, that they just seemed... To fully concentrated on getting the job done at Brighton, making sure that they don't come away with any injuries, don't come away with any you know, lasting damages uh, mentally in terms of getting beat heavily. Yeah, like, they just seem to play too safe for me, which again comes from, you know, Robertson's a lot more adventurous going forward. Simikas hasn't quite got that confidence or ability. I think he can put a good crossing like Robertson can, but just, you know, just hasn't got quite the confidence to hold his line, probably go start 10 yards further forward and just starts a bit more defensive so he's got like more ground to make up but yeah it just seems like a bit of a I'm not going to say unexpected performance because we've seen it before in games I think I think I've mentioned it before it screams of a performance similar to when they played Red Star Belgrade away a couple of years ago where they just weren't at it at all but the difference there was they were away from home in a hostile atmosphere this time they're at home albeit no crowd but just it was unexpected to see it at home. If it had been away, you would expect it more. But just at home, I know the crowd isn't there. I think if fans were there, we would have got a different performance because the fans wouldn't have let that happen, I don't think. Um, but it is what it is. They've got two more games to try and get qualified. They've got Brighton away at the weekend. They didn't come away with any injuries that we know of. So, you know, <laughs> try and look at it as positive as you can. Substitutions baffled me, Matt, I'll be honest. I mean, you mentioned Robertson before in terms of, you know, getting 
getting him on the field, not seeing him on the pitch. I wouldn't have put him on the pitch at that point. I think it's important to reference, you know, there's a real sort of sliding doors moment in the game whereby Liverpool are waiting to bring four players on and Atalanta score a goal. I basically think we're 10 minutes away from everyone shaking hands on nil-nil, especially Atalanta, if that's the case. If them players come on, Liverpool get a bit of a second wing, go up a gear. I think 10 minutes after that happening, I think everyone would have been sort of okay with nil-nil at that point. But they get the goal, which is fair enough. But I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure about what the manager's plans and processes were. You know, it's, it's, it's fine to say that he had none. It's fine to say that he was managing in-game. But if you know anything about Klopp, he's all about pre-planning. He's all about sort of thinking ahead, not just in terms of the next fixture, but the next five. And they were substitutes to me that looked like he was acting a little bit too much on instinct, if you like. At that point, I'd rather just put, not put Robertson on the pitch. And I get that Shemikas maybe only had X amount of minutes in his legs from sports scientists or whatever, but... Yeah, like Mark says before, Matip going long into the night was was also a bit strange. Yeah, you get the you get the, the Salah one because he's had COVID and, and you're sort of managing for 60, you get him off, etc, etc. But they just felt a bit, yeah, they, they felt a bit sort of almost as if the manager had his chimpanzee on his shoulder, for want of a better phrase, telling him that he had to go and win the game as soon as possible and it worked out the way it worked out. Yeah, the the fact that it was a quadruple change, wasn't it? We don't see them very often. It, it did feel like it was a premeditated one, but then you think, well, you know, Robertson and Jota for a, a spell looked like they were going to come on at half time. I don't know whether that was the manager changing his mind or, or whether you know Liverpool w- were never expecting them to to come on at, at that point in the game. It, it sort of was referenced in, in commentary on the television that you know Jota was getting ready, Andy Robertson was ready, and then he'd sat back down again and. It just seemed a little bit like they changed their mind on exactly when that was going to happen. But to be honest, I'm completely with you. I think if you go with Simikas, I think that's a decision that is okay. At left back, I think obviously at some point he's got to come in. You've got to give Andy Robertson a rest. But what they kind of did there, as you say, was almost a halfway house between giving rest, um, Robertson a rest and bringing in Simikas or or not doing that at all. And I think it, if you started with Simikas, you have to sort of just play him for the full game, not give Robertson any minutes, just give him the entire night off. He can be on the bench, you know, if there's an injury or something like that, he can come on. But essentially just say to him that you've got the night off, you've had a, a tough international break, we'll see you on Saturday, we'll, we'll use you for the Brighton game. And yeah, it was uh, it was slightly strange that they chose to bring him on. I think it was you know less strange that, as you say, they, they brought off Mohamed Salah because you've got to, to manage his minutes after he's come back from the, the positive test with, with COVID. But yeah, the, the substitutions were, were strange. I think if if you'd have said that there was going to be one premeditated change, I think as Mark says, it, it would have been that you give Matip half the game and, and Fabinho the other half of the game. To be honest, I probably wouldn't have played uh, Joel Matip at, at all just because we know what his injury situation is like. I would have just said, well, the priority for this week is, is Saturday. It's not tonight. So again, Matip, like Robertson, if, if we're not going to take that risk, we don't do it at all. But yeah, I'm sure there was a plan from Jurgen Klopp because that is the kind of manager that he is. We've seen that in the past. He did it, I think, was it against Mitch and Ant, where he makes a, a triple change on, on 60 minutes. We've seen it happen before. So there must have been some sort of thought process and plan and, and managing the minutes ahead of Brighton, Brighton at, at the weekend. But yeah, it it just it wasn't quite the way that you would expect it to come from Jurgen Klopp. And it, it just seemed, as you say, a little bit 
haphazard in the approach, which is is not something that we've come to know from from Klopp and his staff in in recent times. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Mark, one of, one of the, the sort of rebuttals to Klopp's interview last week against Leicester was the fact that Liverpool are a top side, so therefore they should have a top squad, so therefore they should be able to cope with injuries, as if people who are paid lots of money aren't supposed to have hamstrings that can be pulled. Um, but I think that there's there's definitely a conversation to have around whether Liverpool's squad is in fact sort of deep and durable enough. And, you know, on paper, it's it's absolutely, you know, stock full of, of talent and brimming with, with players who can do a job. But when you see last night, for instance, Origi comes in from the cold, he's, he's playing through the middle, he's got a, he's very much got a brief that he doesn't fulfil. By all accounts, you know, Ian Doyle tweeted during the game that, that Klopp was not happy with Minamino from the sidelines that he could see in terms of his movement with Origi, sorry, um, Taki Minamino doesn't get on the pitch until 84 minutes. You know, it's indicting on him that, that he doesn't start the game and, and Origi does. Um, you've got other players there, Oxlade-Chamberlain, Kaita, Shakiri, Matip, as, as Matt's referenced. You know, these players who aren't blessed with the greatest fitness record and, and sort of where I'm going with this is, you know, does the manager at a point have to look at this and say, well, yeah, he's got a great squad, but are the players in and around the periphery of the starting eleven reliable enough for him? And in the likes of Minamino, in his case, does he does he actually rate them enough to do a job? Because it seems the minute with him that he doesn't. Yeah, it's an interesting question because um I say, I mean, I mentioned it before, one of the most interesting uh change uh lack of change last thought was uh Marnie starting. I fully expected expected uh, Minamino to, to play certainly from the start last night. Whether it was a full game or an hour, or whatever, I, I was very surprised not to see him in the team, and I was even more surprised when they made four changes that he wasn't one of them. And then he brings on Andy Robson and Yoko Jota, who have played a lot of football over the past month or so. So, you know, for one reason or another, Minamino, it's not quite worked at the moment. Um, I'm still not at the point where I'm buying it off him off as a Liverpool player, but you know, there certainly has got to be questions asked of him why he's not being selected as much why he's not being given as much of a chance as say as likes as Jota but you know in fairness to that Jota has been in England for three seasons before he came to Liverpool and Minamino's coming from the Austrian league has got to learn everything but you would think by it was been 11 months or so you would think he would be at a point where he's challenging for a starting spot especially when you know the squad is being utilised so widely as it is in these sorts of games where you want to use your fringe players more Especially with like you know Shakiri, I thought Shakiri would have played yesterday had he been fit. Obviously, that would mean you know probably one of you know, Manny probably wouldn't have played either. Maybe Wijnaldum giving a rest, but you know the squad is blessed with a lot of talent. There's no doubt about it. And it must be remembered, you know, there's Oxley, Chamberlain on the sidelines, Thiago, Henderson. Um, in defence, you've got uh, Gomez and Van Dijk. Up front, you've got Shakiri. Um, there's a lot of injuries in there, and you take you know what was that, half a dozen, seven players out of any squad, especially when they're as good as what these ones are, that is going to impact you. But, you know, there has got to be questions asked of me. You know, in terms of Origi, I think we've learned by now what he brings or doesn't bring to the team. But in terms of Minamino, there certainly has got to be a question asked of what, you know, 
how do they, or how does Klopp use him going forward? He obviously rates him as a player. That's why he wanted to bring him to the club. He was absolutely delighted when, in some ways, when he scored against Liverpool for the Sol- uh, for Salzburg last year. So, yeah, it's it's getting to the point where it is a concern. But you know, be, it will certainly be. I don't expect him to play against Brighton, but it'd be interesting to see whether. He gets a game against Ajax. Personally, after last night, I don't think he will because there's a lot more on this game now. Now that Liverpool have lost, um, but yeah, it's certainly going to be an interesting thing going forward. Are we being unfair in a way, Matt? Am I being unfair in the sense that you know you've got Klopp, who's a, as we've spoken about, he's very he's very sort of pragmatic in his managerial approach, more so than people actually realise. They they sort of associate him with the Gagan press with the the heavy metal football, but, you know, he's more conservative than, than people think. He's got his starting 11. He's got his sort of 14 or 15 that he goes to. Is it hard to be a player on the periphery of this Liverpool side who can sort of come in out of the cold, play with the same intensity and not sort of be at risk to injury? Is it going to happen? Is it something that we just have to deal with, do you think? It's a really difficult one, isn't it? I think Liverpool going into the season, I don't think many people would have had too many concerns. I think Liverpool have been obviously very, very unfortunate with injuries. I think, for example, if Virgil van Dijk isn't injured and van Dijk plays yesterday, I'm not sure either of those two goals that Atalanta score happen. I think van Dijk would have positioned the defence in a better way. I think the midfield, as a result of him being there, would have been slightly further forward. And there's not really too much that Jurgen Klopp can do about the fact that you know, Van Dijk is out for a period of time. You can't just buy a, another Van Dijk in anticipation of Van Dijk getting injured. I think it's very difficult for, for him to balance. He's always been a manager who wants to work with a, a small squad, as you reference. Obviously, the size of the squad this season is slightly larger in anticipation of there being so many matches. But, you know, if Liverpool, uh, towards the end of this season, for instance, get a few of these players who are out injured, Shakiri, Henderson, Thiago... If in January a few of these players are back fit again, suddenly we're looking at this Liverpool squad in a, a very different way and, and suddenly you're looking and saying, well, Minamino for some of these Premier League games might not even get on the bench if Shakiri is fit and in form, if there's you know a few other players in, in different positions who you could say a similar sort of thing about. So I just think at this moment in time, it, it maybe looks worse than it is. It, it It's a situation where Liverpool could not have anticipated being this decimated by injuries all in certain positions, all at the same time. So I think possibly in four to six weeks' time, we could look at it in a very different way. So I think it it would be a little bit harsh, I think, to, to sort of criticise them in that regard for their squad, because apart from at centre-back, I don't think anybody was really saying that going into the season. Yeah, and you can check out a piece that Mark's writing about that Takumi Minamino situation on Liverpool.com. That'll be out later today. Um, as will another piece that me and Mark are, are deliberating on, and we're going to sort of have 10 minutes of fun with that now. It's about players' contracts and specifically players who expire in 2023. We had a look this morning and there's some tasty names of Liverpool players whose contracts expired in 2023. So we've decided to go through them individually and ask the question to each other, would you give them a deal this summer? Based on a variance of situations and circumstances, um, we wanted an answer that will be up on the site later. So I'm going to go through, not one each, but I'll uh, I'll go through sort of a player and then get one of your opinion 
and then we'll move on as not to spoil the piece entirely. Um, so, Mark, I'll start with you. I'm one of the players that was sort of more um, difficult for me to make a decision than I thought was Alex Oxley chamberlain He is 27, so he'll be approaching 30 come 2023. Um, injuries, as we know. But would you give him a deal or not this summer? Um, I think like you, I think I don't quite an issue trying to decide which way to go on this. Um, as a player uh, and as a person as well, I'm a massive fan of him. I think he's a, a brilliant player to watch. I think he's arguably one of the most useful players to have in the squad when fully fit, purely because he can operate pretty much almost anywhere on the pitch. I'm certainly on the right-hand side on the wing, even at right-back, we saw him at Arsenal briefly, but that's probably not a situation you want to do too often. But certainly in midfield, there's a lot of options there that you can do with him. But, you know, the one thing that worries me with him is his fitness and injury record. You know, the one that he, uh, the ACL that he got obviously was, you know, a massive piece of bad luck on his part. Um, but And he battled back and came back well from injury. But ever since then, he just keeps getting the odd little injury every now and then. And then he's been injured pretty much since pre-season. Um, it, just does, it just worries me when a player get, keeps getting injured or suffers a bad injury. They just keep reoccurring maybe every now and then. They can't go at full pelt every, as they once could. Um it, it's not something I enjoy thinking, but I personally wouldn't give him a, a new deal. Um, but it all depends on whether he can stay fit between now and 2023, which is a very, very long time. Okay. Um, Matt, Jadon Shakiri, he's 29 now. He is out of contract in 2023. Um, this is one of the easier ones for me. What would you do with Jadon Shakiri this summer? Well, I think first and foremost, the answer for, for all of these is you either give them a new deal or you look to sell them next summer, I think, because you don't want to, to be getting into the final year of the contract. We've seen the issue well, well, with someone. Know, I don't know. I'll, I'll argue the point with you on one of them. Yeah, but... we, we, we've seen the issue with, with Genie Wijnaldum and various others. I don't think Liverpool can afford to, to let something similar with one or two of the, the bigger names on this list happen. Uh, not suggesting that they will but in, in terms of Shakiri, I would not offer him a new deal I think he's at uh, an age where you know you would be, be looking to move him on before that point Liverpool had set a price this summer they wanted 28 million pounds for him uh, obviously Covid changed that nobody was was prepared to come in for him there was a couple of teams I think Roma was one of them I think uh, Sevilla was one of them as well that, that would have potentially come in and, and signed him this summer so this is a fairly straightforward one, I think, not just because of the age, but the fact that, that Liverpool essentially were happy to let Zerdan Shakiri go this summer suggests that probably if he doesn't you know, continue to, to stay fit or he doesn't make himself an even more crucial part of this team between now and, and the end of the season, it might be one that we see get sold next summer. So, yeah, no new contract for, for me for Zerdan Shakiri. I think he'll be probably long gone by 2023. All right, I'll do the next one. Um, Roberto Firmino. Um, and just to sort of counter Matt's point in a way, I would not give Roberto Firmino a contract this summer, but I would not sell him either. I think that come 2023, um, the player will be over 30. Um, not sure of ex his exact age. I haven't got it in front of me. In fact, I'll have a quick look while we're on. So he will turn 30 this summer in June. So 
you know, we'll be looking at 32 from the end of his deal. And I think we're already getting signs that Firmino is physically very slowly feeling the effects of, of his last five years at Liverpool. And I don't think that's, you know, I don't think that's a criticism of him. I don't think that's an unfair statement to make. I think it's just general wear and tear because he's been such a good player and he's been so durable. Um, so I think I would actually favour a Wijnaldum type situation with Firmino whereby we run his deal down and we all shake hands on what an unbelievable servant he's been to this club at the age in which I think it's probably right that he leaves the club. So I'd be doing nothing with him, but I wouldn't be giving him a new contract either. Mark, I'll come back around to you. Uh, Naby Keita is a very interesting case in point. He is, at the moment, contracted for 2023. He's 25 years of age. He'll turn 26 in February, and his contract ends on the 30th of June. What would you do with him? Well, this, this is going to be the first time I actually would award a new contract to somebody, um, given that we've just had a stream of no's go, go their way. Um, but now, there's just something about Kater that I really, really like. Um, the one thing that I'm... In some, to some extent, I'm going to counteract my point I made about Oxlade Chamberlain is that he has had a number of injuries, probably more, probably more than Oxlade Chamberlain as well. But yeah, you know, there's just something about him when he's at at his best, he's just a joy to watch. Um, I think against Leicester, the most recent example, he was the best player on the pitch before he came off injured after 50 minutes easily. Um, and when he does that, I just think you know he can dictate the way a game flows, um, whether it's if it's a high tempo game he can play that game if it's you know a bit slow and trying to break the team down he can do that as well but you know he's just the most he just epitomizes everything Klopp is about in terms of the way he leads the press he can pretty much do anything you want in midfield attack defense or as just a regular box to box so purely he's a bit younger than Oxley Trainman by the time his contract runs out it'll be what 28 I think by the time he gets there so he probably will have a couple more years left at the top fitness providing um but yeah for those few reasons for the fact that he is just so can be just so magical to watch when he's at his best albeit not too often in the poor shirt so far but the potential there for me is enough to give him a new deal i've just realized you've missed one out in the fabino mark so we'll have to update the uh, the piece before that goes out um i'll hand that over to you matt fabino 27 now um three years left on his deal Turns 28 in October. Uh, what would you be doing there? Yeah, I think um, I think you you would offer him a new contract. I think he's probably for me, as much as we've seen him at, at centre back, he's probably the best holding midfielder in the Premier League at this moment in time. I think he's a much more mobile and sort of energetic midfielder than a lot of people give him credit for. I think he's sort of quite a, a tall, rangy type player. Sometimes you, you don't quite realise how mobile he can actually be at, at the base of that midfield. But yeah, for me, I think you, you would definitely tie him down, partly because of his age, partly because of, of the attributes that he's got. And yeah, I think he can, can certainly be a big part of this Liverpool team going forward. So I think he'd be a, a very, very difficult player to replace. I think Liverpool spent a long time trying to find that perfect person to, to sit in front of of the defence. I think obviously other players can do it. Wijnaldum can do it. Henderson can do it. But I don't think either of them can do it quite to the same level of, of Fabinho. And of course, he comes with the, 
the extra thing of being able to play at centre back, probably play him at right back as well as he has done in the past. So I think he he's too valuable a player to to let go. And for me, that there's no doubt that you would offer him a new deal. All right, it's about to get very tasty indeed. Um, I'll go next. Sadio Mane is the no-brainer for me, and he's 28 years of age now. Uh, he'll be 29 in June. That means it'll take him to 31. I think he's durable. I think he's fit. I think he has the ability to use his brain and the game intelligence to play in a, a manner of positions later on in his career. I don't think he's reliant on his pace, but I also don't see him overly sort of losing his pace, although he may lose his explosivity with times. Um, I think I think Mane for me is one that Liverpool need to nail down. I think he's he's shown that he's you know in tip top condition physically. I think he's a player who, like I said, with his back to goal, for example, in front of goal, I think he's shown that he can maybe be a centre forward. He can move more centrally with time. So I think getting him nailed down on a deal this summer would be a priority for me. Um, that's Sadio Mane. Mark, I'll hand you over similarly. Age profile, position to Mohamed Salah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a tricky one because, you know, certainly in my lifetime, he is one of the best players I've ever seen in a Liverpool shirt. I think he's just come up with some of the most magical moments you could ever wish to see in a fo- on a football pitch, certainly at Anfield. But, like I say, what age will he be when he comes 2023? 20, he's 31, 32, around about that age. Um, you know, unlike Manny, I think Salah is a bit reliant on his pace. Um, you know, running between the lines, obviously on counter attacks, he's obviously one of the most devastating players in world football in those situations. And you know, as much as it, we don't want it to happen, there are, is going to come a time when he just loses half a yard, a yard in pace, and that will a lot quite impactfully affect his game, whether we want it to or not. Um, you know, how many he's got three years left on his deal, two and a half years left on his deal, whether. Like to go back to Matt's point of if you're not going to offer them a deal, would you sell them in the summer or look to sell them? I wouldn't go that far, but me personally, I wouldn't offer him a new deal. Okay, a um, couple more to get through. Matt, I'm going to give you the ultimate sticky one to uh, to digest. Virgil van Dijk. This isn't as easy as people think, and I think it's it's interesting that he hasn't signed a deal yet since he joined the club. But he's 29 now. He's got a massive injury. Um, and he's two years left on his deal in the summer. What would you do there? Yeah, I mean, the injury is a, a sticking point for me because you never quite know, is he going to come back the exact same player? If he does come back and he's the same player, which there's a chance that, that that will be the case, and obviously everyone hopes that is the case, I think it, it becomes a lot easier. Obviously, you know the centre-backs can, can play at their peak for a lot longer than outfield players. I think the conversation around Van Dijk's age is slightly different, for example, to someone like Roberto Firmino, who is you know, at a similar sort of age at this moment in time. We're, we're talking about them in slightly different ways. I think, for me, Van Dijk is good enough that you would keep him about. I think, for me, there's no doubt that, again, you do offer him that new deal. But the only thing in the back of my mind is that injury. I think Liverpool have got to a situation where they've been very reliant on him for the last couple of seasons. 
I think as much as anything else, you don't want to ever have to replace him. You will have to replace him at some point, but I would rather Liverpool replaced these key players in stages. And I think you can keep Virgil van Dijk injury permitting longer than you can keep Mane, Salah, players like that. So I think you try and, and replace in the next two or three years Mane and Salah long-term. Once you've got that boxed off, you then try and replace Van Dijk. So yeah, for, for me, he gets a new contract and I think if he can come back, and there's no guarantee of this, but if he can come back, make his recovery before the end of this season, play a couple of games at the latter end of this season, I think probably we see a new contract almost as a reward for that getting over the injury probably next summer. Okay, last one. We'll go around the room very quickly on, and then we'll finish up. Uh, the captain, Jordan Henderson, I'll start. I would say no, don't give him a contract this summer, but I would say eventually over the course of the next two summers, you give him a two-year deal. There's two questions you have to answer with Henderson. A, what he wants to do in his future, and therefore does he have a future at Liverpool beyond just playing? And B, how long can he actually play for? I think if you make the argument that he can play until he's 35, not at this level, but he can do a James Milner-type job, then you get him on a two-year deal um, as and when his contract expires in 2023. If you don't think that you know he's someone who can go into coaching or can or can play and, and that time might actually just creep up on him quicker than others, then I think you, you maybe need to shake hands on the current contract when it expires then. But for me, I'd be looking to, to give him a two-year deal around the time of expiry of his current one. Uh, Mark, what would you do? I think I'd probably echo the same view as you. Um, I think given what he's given to the club, given the amount of time he's given to the club, I mean, it'll be, I think 2023, it'll be, what, 12 years they'll have given to the club by the time that comes around. You know, that's a really, really long time. Not many players go that long. So I think by the time that comes around, I think he's, he'll have earned the right to do pretty much whatever he wants, whether it's leave on a free, whether it's, you know, go off and sign for another club in another country, another league, whatever that may be. Um, me personally, I want to see him at the club for as long as possible. But you know, in terms of offering a new deal this summer, I wouldn't offer him one this summer. But I think I would do something like you know, with, they've done with James Milner, get close to the end, and then look at his fitness levels, look at what he wants to do, and then see offering a one or two year extension. That would be the way I'd do it. But yeah, just keeping the club as long as possible. Me personally, Matt, any different thoughts? I think James Milner is the example that, that you've got to follow. I think Jordan Henderson is far too valuable for this Liverpool team, even if you have to, to over time, limit the matches that he plays for, for him not to be around, I think would be a mistake. So I think you probably, if not this summer uh, coming up, at some point you offer him a sort of rolling contract because I, I can see him wanting to, to finish his career at Liverpool. I think if he does want to, to go somewhere else, Absolutely, he's earned the right to, to do that. But yeah, I, I can certainly see a situation where he probably goes on a, a little bit longer than, than maybe people think. I think maybe he becomes this James Milner sort of person where, you know, even in the sense that he might have to, to fill in a, a game or two at right back at, at, at certain times, he might have to play in midfield, he might have to adapt the way that he plays. But I think he, he's going to be one of those that, that can be really, really useful off the pitch as much as on it. So yeah, I think you keep him around. I think you work out from his perspective, what does he want to do next? If he wants to be a coach, do the do the coaching badges, do that sort of thing, uh, whilst 
whilst being at, at Liverpool and just see where you go. But yeah, there, there's no doubt for me that, that Jordan Henderson is still hugely valuable and that he still will be in a, a few years' time as well. So yeah, follow the, the James Milner example and, and keep him rolling over at Liverpool. All right. Huge thank you to Matt and to Mark. Uh, check out liverpool.com for, for those pieces we mentioned and, and tons more. We'll be looking ahead to Brighton. We will be burying the ghost of Atalanta as soon as possible, as will this Liverpool team and manager, we hope. Um, in the meantime, stay safe and let's all look forward to, to some fans getting back into Anfield very soon. See ya. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.